You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Catherine Judge, who is a professor at Columbia Law School and also the author of this book right here, Direct, The Rise of the Middleman Economy and the Power of Going to the Source. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm familiar with your work because you wrote extensively about securitization and the financial crisis. And this book expands from that, but it goes into a lot of different domains. You talk about food and you talk about real estate and you talk about the maker economy. And the subtitle is The Middleman Economy. You talk about the benefits and costs of these things we call middlemen. And I think most people have a vague understanding of what they mean when they talk about middleman. And I think the thrust of the book is really to highlight the costs of this middleman economy. You talk about the benefits and the costs, but I think you're really trying to bring attention to some of the things that we give up as supply chains become a lot more complex. Now, as an economist, I remember hearing someone say once that all of business can be explained as the history of bundling and unbundling. <laughs> and I think you could probably also make the case that all of business is the history of intermediation and disintermediation. And it seems like there's just this constant push and pull. And the way I see it is that when intermediation gets too complicated, then that creates a demand for disintermediation. And then when disintermediation gets out of hand, that creates a demand for intermediation. Is that kind of how you see it? Do you see it sort of as this frequency dependent evolution? Or do you think that it's like a one-way ratchet? There are like these frictions, or at least when folks get too big, when intermediaries get too big, they have ways of entrenching themselves and stalling the process of disintermediation. Is that sort of what you're suggesting? That is one of the core ideas that the book's trying to get at. I mean, a lot of it is, as you nicely just framed, an exploration of intermediation. We don't think about intermediation design that much. Some of us do. That's all I think about, right? Mm -hmm. Like when you study the financial system, you're studying intermediation design. And what the book tries to draw out is how much intermediation design shapes so many different aspects of our lives and the structure of the economy and why and how it's evolved and the many benefits that the changes in intermediation have wrought, but also the cost in part because the costs tend to be less immediate than the benefits. So I try to provide a somewhat balanced account because I think the benefits are real. I think we need to be honest about the fact that usually you're making trade-offs when you're making different design choices. So yeah, the book really is an exploration of intermediation design. And part of what it shows is usually these structures are growing because in the short run, they create efficiencies. So when I talk about the middleman economy, it's really two phenomena that build off each other. One are the increasing scale of intermediaries, whether it's large banks, Walmart, Amazon, and then how the scale of those largest intermediaries justifies changes in the process of production quite often where it becomes more disaggregated. So you get the longer and the complex supply chains and then how these two patterns feed off of each other. The point you just made, which is one of the things I'm trying to draw that the book draws out is very often these arise because they are providing efficiencies and gains in the short run. But once you have the concentrations of power and size that over time oftentimes enables these large intermediaries to not only shape the evolution of the market, 
but also shape the regulatory environment in which they are operating. And once that starts to happen, even if there is significant gains that they're providing, they can also be in a position to prevent technological developments that might result in more efficient and otherwise superior system from taking hold. And so a lot of the book is about that tension. It's about trying to understand what's at stake, understand how we got to where we are, and then help to make salient not just the benefits that we already are very aware of, but some of the indirect costs that suggest maybe we don't have the balance quite right now. Well, maybe we can flesh out what we mean when we talk about complex supply chains. One of the fun facts that I talk about in my banking class is when we look at all of the assets, say, in the U.S. economy, and we tally them all up, and then we divide by the net worth of the economy, we usually get a pretty big number, like seven or eight. I don't know what the number is right now. And this just highlights how assets are sliced and diced and reconfigured and sliced and diced. And so when you write your mortgage check, it's going to pass through half a dozen different hands before it winds up in the pocket of the person who's going to go buy goods and services with it. And I think you highlight how this is true for food. My favorite analogy in the book was the comparison between the pink slime that you get in the Costco hamburger and the sort of toxic waste that you might find in a complex asset-backed security. By the time things get through all these different layers, it's very difficult for the end user to know what the raw materials actually are. When we say complexity or length of these supply chains, what do we mean? Is that something that we can measure? I love the diving in further on securitization because I actually think that's where a lot of these patterns started to become evident to me. And it does help to illuminate the challenges of then understanding what is actually behind the goods that you're wearing and the goods that we're consuming. As you know, as a banking expert, but not all of your listeners might know, the financial system really underwent a massive transformation starting around the 1980s. So up until that time, in the United States at least, it really was a country that was dominated by small community banks. And They accepted deposits and made loans largely in a limited geographic area. And a lot of that was really a relationship-based system. So we know that they actually made different types of loans because they were really focused on it as an ongoing relationship that could evolve over time. And then we had this increasing size of the banks, right? So we suddenly had the top six banks now today controlling the majority of bank assets. And... They brought a very different set of resources, new types of technology, new types of data to the table. And that changed how they did loan underwriting and also other provision of financial services in ways that made it look like you could standardize the process of underwriting those loans and then use securitization to slice and dice the underlying cash flows and then allocate those to people who are in a better position, perhaps, than banks to actually hold the different types of risks associated with the underlying loans. And part of what we forget now in the wake of the crisis is the gains that this appeared to create in the short run. You know, so first of all, we still have securitization, but the multi-layers of securitization, the crazy things that were happening in the aughts, in the short run, really did result in the highest rates of home ownership that we've ever seen in this country and a meaningful reduction in the size of the racial housing gap, which has always been one of the key contributors to the racial wealth gap. So in the short run, this like increasing complexity where we first went from having just a bank to then having a securitization structure, separating out the investors and the underlying providers of loans, and then multiple different layers where the underlying cash flows were actually mixed together and then disaggregated 
across these different entities really did create short-term efficiencies, or at least appeared to. But of course, then in 2007 and really in 2008, the other shoe dropped. And part of what was so interesting to me as somebody who spent a lot of time studying that period is if you go back, by any metric, the crisis started in August 2007 at the latest. So there were really 13 months that we were in the midst of a financial crisis before the famous Lehman weekend, before the near failure of AIG, and before things got really, really bad. And you go back to things like the transcripts of the meetings of the FOMC, the Fed body that makes their meeting transcripts public, and they're aware that there's very significant risks, but they can't figure out where they are. And you look at what was happening in terms of market functioning, and you similarly see that actually everybody knew that there were challenges and that they were actually relatively finite in terms of like where the, the risks lie, but nobody could understand how that risk had been reallocated across the system. So you had more than a year of both policymakers and market participants really trying to play catch up and being unable to do so. And even when Lehman failed, we actually now know that the direct exposures to Lehman weren't that big. But instead, the challenge was nobody knew how big other banks' exposures were to Lehman, and nobody wanted to take a chance going ahead and engaging without that information. And so part of what I started to realize in finance, which is true other places, is you had the scale. And they also, there's a mechanism through which they changed the regulatory regime, which enabled all this to happen. But these incredibly large intermediaries and these more complex chains, which enable this hyper-specialization, really oftentimes can seem to create short-term efficiencies, but a lot of information gets lost. You're contracting around the information that you think that you need. We think we can use technology to make soft information hard, but the reality is it's still a subset of the relevant information. And then I would say, look, recently, we've seen the exact same thing with the real economy, where suddenly real economy companies had optimized their modes of production. So they knew who their upstream supplier was one step upstream, but they didn't necessarily know beyond that. And first, that's resulted in a lot more dysfunction as the economy came back online after the pandemic. But we're also seeing challenges as both investors and consumers are saying, look, we actually want to know more about the environmental impact and the impact on workers. Like that information is actually very hard right now, oftentimes for companies to produce. So part of what's really interesting in intermediation design is people were making trade-offs oftentimes without realizing they were making trade-offs. And it's those trade-offs that the book is trying to make salient. It seems what you're describing, aren't those two separate and maybe orthogonal developments? So on the one hand, you have this vertical fragmentation, right? The banks move from a originate and hold model to an originate and distribute model. So that's like a vertical disintegration, which makes the supply chains more complex. But then when you talk about consolidation, that's a horizontal maneuver, which simplifies and makes less complex what's happening because you're defragmenting the banking system by getting rid of a lot of the smaller banks. Are those two necessarily related? Because it would seem you could argue that the originate and distribute model would make it easier for you to be a small bank because you could diversify, you could get offload some of the local risk and add back non-local risk, and then you could run with lower capital and so forth. So are these things necessarily connected, increasing scale and the increasing complexity, or could they be working in opposite directions sometimes? They're certainly not synonymous, and there might be circumstances where they pull in different directions. But one of the key arguments that I'm making that I think is a little different is that I do think these two feed off of each other in really fundamental ways. There's a lot of conversations right now about scale and centralized power, a lot of conversations about supply chain complexity. Very often, it is treated as two separate phenomenon. 
that we ought to focus on completely separately. But so let's go a little bit further into the banking example. One, it really was the large banks that originally started to use more of the standardized metrics, which is one of the key elements. And they were coming to the table with different types of models that also enabled the subsequent securitization. So you're certainly right, community banks also got into the game. Community banks also potentially had significant gains. The whole idea originally of securitization was we were gonna make banks more stable because the interest rate risk that they were otherwise exposed to and that had hurt them so much in the SNL crisis could now be borne by a different set of investors. And one of the significant drawbacks of community banks as they were historically operating was that they had so much exposure to the local economy And so you're now able to diversify. So there were a lot of stories for why this was a good thing. But a lot of it was, I think, the larger banks that initially, at least, and government programs, the government-sponsored enterprises played a really big role here, that allowed the apparent standardization of what were inherently, to some extent, idiosyncratic loans. And similarly, the largest banks were some of the critical actors in ensuring the regulatory environment that allowed all this to happen. One example of this is we did see a rise in predatory lending in the aughts. And now that is widely recognized. But actually, while that was happening, the states were quicker than the federal regulators to appreciate what was occurring. And so Georgia and a number of other states said, we need to have more aggressive anti-predatory lending practices, particularly around home loans, because there's a lot of things that are happening to Georgia residents that we're really troubled by. And so they, at the state level, adopted additional protections in connection with making sure people really understood what they were taking out for home loans. And then the large national banks went to the comptroller of the currency and went to the Office of Thrift Supervision, so the two big federal regulators, and they said, look, these little Georgia state regulators don't understand what they're doing. What they don't understand is Georgia residents are going to be better off if they have more access to credit. And being able to create a national uniform market is key for us to be able to engage in securitization. And securitization is how we're going to be able to provide them that additional credit. So what you need to do is preempt, use your federal authority to preempt these applications of these state consumer protections, and they were able to tell a very convincing story. And so suddenly we saw the OCC and the OTS preempting the application of these laws. But of course, what we now know is they were being adopted precisely in a window of time when there was an incredible amount of predatory lending and actually less credit extension with respect to home loans actually would have been better for most borrowers and would have been much better for the health of the overall economy. So the state regulators who were close to the ground were actually the ones in the right position But the scale of the large banks did enable a particular type of lobbying to occur. And if you shift over to like the real economy, you see something like Amazon and Walmart. On the one hand, to be able to produce enough goods to have your goods on the shelves of every Walmart across the country, much less across the world, you're talking about incredible scale. So the degree of disaggregation that suddenly might seem cost justified is different because you're like, okay, there's a certain amount of cost to taking these two steps and moving this one over here because we can do something slightly less expensively, either because it's regulated in a different way or there's a different labor force, but there's going to be a bridge that we have to create. And the likelihood that we're going to be able to justify the cost of creating that bridge goes up as the sheer volume of goods that we're producing goes up. So part of what you're seeing is that the economies of scale 
do shift the nature of production, particularly when you think about both the IT and communications and the transportation technologies that have developed over the last century, change the nature of production. And you again have those very large intermediaries helping to try to shape the rules in a particular way. I think they took it down now, but Cargill always had this beautiful website, fedbytrade.com. So Cargill is one of the biggest private companies in the world, but one of the biggest in the United States, incredibly active food middlemen worldwide. They've been actively lobbying in the United States, Europe, and elsewhere for the free trade laws that enable the more complex chains. So I agree that there are different things. And very often, as an academic, I much prefer to say, let's just focus on this thing, and we can bring rigor by studying this thing in isolation. And I think part of the reason I chose to actually undertake this as a book and look across so many different domains is that when we're looking at all these different things in isolation, there's actually a broader pattern of the way the two feed off of each other that we're missing. And so they are certainly not synonymous. You certainly have the possibility of having one without the other. But I do think there's multiple mechanisms through which the information and expertise and infrastructure that the largest intermediaries create gives them outsized power in ways that also facilitate fundamental shifts in the nature of production and the regulatory scheme. Now, in the book, you define middlemen very expansively. Walmart shows up as a middleman, but you also talk about Walmart as displacing middlemen because they got rid of the wholesalers that would normally supply mom and pops. And then you refer to Amazon as, well, a middleman in two different senses, right? One where they are selling stuff that they themselves acquire and then also serving as a platform for small vendors. And I want to dig into that second version because that last version, the idea of a platform, it includes companies like Etsy or Shopify. And you highlight how those platforms actually seem to enable small players to survive. They might have difficulty engaging in direct commerce if they didn't have this platform which would bring them together with buyers. So to what extent can the emergence of new types of middlemen actually enable smaller scale production? I love the part about food. I'm a foodie like yourself. The idea of heading on out to the farm and picking up my produce, even someone who I guess may have more leisure than the average person, that to me is a rather intimidating prospect. So I want somebody to gather it all up into one spot. And farmer's market's one example, but we have this wonderful store here in Berkeley, the Berkeley Bowl, where one-stop shop, I can get everything there. And that's not a farmer's market. They actually buy the stuff and sell it like Whole Foods does. Do those sorts of platforms actually enable smaller scale production and to some extent facilitate that connection that you talk about between the buyer and the seller? I think that's certainly the case. And actually, that's among the many reasons I think it was such a timely moment to write the book we are seeing technology being used in different ways. On the one hand, you do have these really large intermediaries, Amazon and Walmart that we think about, that are doing an incredible amount with data in ways that are helping to strengthen their position. At the same time, we are seeing technology come in and actually enable a disruption to some of the largest and most entrenched intermediation schemes and enable a really different type of exchange. So I do think that the nice thing about the internet is not only that you and I can be talking in New York and Berkeley, but you can suddenly have a significant scale at the point of intermediation while maintaining something that's more personal and individual and smaller scale on both sides. Part of what's really interesting about platforms is within the platform economy, you actually have a microcosm of the broader trend that we're talking about. So if we think about hyper-intermediation on one side, and yet you actually go to the farm 
on the other side. Really, a lot of the point of the book is not that we want to get all the way to the other point. It's that we want a little bit more of a balance, a little bit more of a mix. But platforms are coming in, and depending on how they're designed, they either are operating much more in the ways we associate with the middleman economy, or they're Etsy or Kickstarter and these other sites that actually allow, through their architecture and through design choices that they're making, a very different type of connection and understanding and a different level of communication to happen between the buy and the seller. So you're not just relying on kind of a star rating that Amazon has put in place, but a more personal set of interactions in the process of transacting. There's a framework that I use in my finance classes, my banking class. You didn't use it in the book where we talk about direct search markets versus broker markets versus dealer markets, and they behave differently. And in the conventional story where it's seen as sort of a progress where you move from direct search to a broker, and then the broker reduces transaction costs, and then ultimately to dealer. And a dealer is seen as like, that's the <laughs> pinnacle, right? That's when you've really made it to the big time because you've got some intermediary that takes inventory and greases the skids of commerce. Are there differences when we think about brokers versus dealers? Are dealers, we think of them as being good, but I think you're arguing that when we make that move, when there's someone standing between the buyer and the seller and keeping them apart and preventing them from interacting with one another, something's lost. So what is it that's lost? I know this is going to be different when we're talking about consumer goods versus, I don't know whether the lender of a mortgage loan and the borrower of a mortgage loan need to sit down and have coffee with one another. But when you're buying food or some kind of other clothing, why is it that people want to have some insight into where this stuff is from? Yeah. So first, the point that you just made distinguishing finance from other types of goods is critical. And part of what we're seeing, there's not a single optimal level of intermediation, partly because it's going to vary depending on technology continues to evolve. Partly it's going to be individual preferences, but it's also going to vary significantly across different types of industries. So one of the examples I use in the book of direct gone wrong in some ways is peer-to-peer lending. So the idea was after the financial crisis, we don't like banks. So I'm going to sit down and I'm going to read all these nice stories of individuals. And then I'm going to help make loans directly to those individuals. And they're going to get a loan directly from this other person. And so we're creating this nice, non-bank reliant way of moving money from one person to another. And of course, like everything went wrong with it. It turns out individuals are really, really bad at assessing credit risk. The default rate were crazy. All of the implicit and explicit biases that individuals have come into who they're willing to make loans too. So whether you're overweight, if you're Black, those things were held against you in terms of your ability to access credit in ways that are really troubling. And also giving money today with the expectation I'm going to get money back tomorrow doesn't create warm and fuzzy feelings. So I think a lot of finance are areas where you want at least one. There's still reasons we might not want CDO squared. So many different layers that massive amounts of information gets lost and rigidity is built in that actually make the overall system more subject to breakdown. So there's still reasons to think a lot that the number of layers matter and the intermediation design matters. But direct is probably not going to be optimal when you're talking about something as fungible and as conducive to fraud as a lot of financial transacting is. By contrast, we thought we wanted like nothing more than low cost and convenience and choice in a lot of consumer goods. And we have that in spades. So we're buying more clothes than ever. We can buy food in ways that are incredibly easy. We are actually eating more than ever. But we also have both the obesity epidemic and a loneliness epidemic, even before COVID. So like all those things that made things so easy also left us far, far more isolated. 
and also really just unaware of the way our actions impact others. So part of the calls to direct is not that we're going to go to direct at all aspects of our lives, but part of what I started to realize for myself was the way these structures actually just blinded me to the way that my actions, the decisions I was making about how to clothe my family and how to feed my family, the impact that we were having on the environment, on other people. Like I actually didn't know. And when I wanted to know, I couldn't find out. And part of what is interesting about doing even a small amount of direct, whether it's like going to farmer's market or if you hate to cook, don't go to the farmer's market, but maybe you have a local coffee shop that you like, is you're actually reminded there always is somebody on the other side of that transaction. There are people and places behind all of the goods that we're bringing into our lives. And once you start to reawaken that awareness, that becomes a mechanism for also helping to build a political will to thinking about what do we want those structures to look like? And what are the trade-offs we're willing to make? And what are the trade-offs we don't want to make? And, you know, finance for you and I spent a lot of times where we're seeing one of those big shifts. Like for a long time, we assumed investors wanted nothing more than maximizing risk-adjusted returns. And we built a system that was all about maximizing risk-adjusted returns. And now we have trillions of dollars flowing into funds where people are saying like, no, I actually care about things like the environmental impact. I don't think government regulation alone is going to do it. So I want to use my wallet and use my investment portfolio to also further some of these values. And now we're seeing the SEC really struggle of what is the type of disclosure that we need to have happen? And they're like, oh, you probably want to know not just what the firm does, but what is the upstream impact? And the firm's like, oh, we don't really actually know that. And so I think there's really difficult questions that we're now facing, both because I think there's a joy that can come from some of those small little connections, which is part of the reason Etsy and Kickstarter and farmers markets are doing well when the traditional economic assumptions suggest they shouldn't because they are more inconvenient and they do entail challenges. And there's a separate set of issues over, is it possible to do that at scale? And how do we think about intermediation design when this is no longer just a niche product, but some awareness or some capacity to understand impact is something that people might be starting to want in a broader set of circumstances. Yeah, I think people do care about that. But I guess the question is, how easily can you scale concern, right? I'd love to go visit the farm and see the pigs and see how well they're treated and maybe spend a couple months there so I know that they're not just giving me a Potemkin village type experience on my day when I visit. But if I have 500 ingredients in a typical meal, this is unrealistic. I'm not going to be able to visit the place in India where the cinnamon is grown and so forth. Doesn't that create a demand for delegated monitoring, just like in banking, where we delegate to somebody else the ability to inspect. I mean, that's what a Whole Foods is for, right? If you trust John Mackey and you think he's well-motivated and you think he's incentivized to inspect his supply chain, then you don't need to think about it. You go in there and you buy your meat there and you assume it's going to be treated better than if you go to Costco, right? Doesn't that really create a demand for scale in intermediation layer. How is a concern for quality any different from the concern over price? Or why would the concern for humaneness or environmental impact be any different from the concern for creditworthiness? Aren't these things where expertise can scale? So we are certainly seeing a lot of demand for precisely these types of services. This is why there's a lot more demand for organic foods or for products that have something like a fair trade label. And the idea behind those labels is just, as you said, because we are now in a system where the process is not directly observable. So quality is directly observable at the endpoint, but the upstream impact is not directly observable. And so then the question is, how much do you know about that? How much do you care about that? And right now, 
for a long time, at least the assumption was effectively zero. And now we're realizing zero isn't the optimal answer for a lot of people and for a lot of goods. And so we're trying to figure out how to shift. One portion of that is an effort to create particular products where there's a third party verification on what the impact is going to be. I would argue, and as a bunch of evidence in the book, suggesting if you think about those verification schemes without also thinking about the structure of intermediation and just how many layers they are, you are very likely going to fail. There's sadly a lot of evidence suggesting, for example, organic is a set of rules. And as you and I both know for credit rating agents and all these other things, when you create a set of rules and you say you're going to be able to charge a premium if you're on this side of the line, but you're not if you're on this side of the line, instead of having the good faith efforts that you get when people actually are really close to their land, where they say, look, I don't even need my CSA. They don't even need an organic because I'm there every single week. Other people are there every single week. We're watching everything that they're doing. But you're right, that's not scalable. So instead you have these set of rules and then there's a lot of concern that what you instead get are people just on this side of the line. So they're able to charge that premium, but they're still doing monocrops that can have adverse environmental effects. And they are doing absolutely everything they can to maximize profit subject to a rule scheme. So you're always going to have gamesmanship is one challenge, which again, doesn't mean that we don't want to have these schemes, but we need to be aware of how imperfect they are. And that very often when you put them into place, some people might be operating in really good faith and say, like, look, there's a sense of principles. And other people are going to say, here's a set of rules, and I want to game the rules. We see similar evidence with fair trade, where actually when you start to go in, we're not actually seeing the impact that you want to have. Some workers are treated better. Other workers are treated much less well. And so the actual impact, sadly, oftentimes isn't what you think it's going to be for what you're paying a premium for. We've seen efforts and pressures put on different types of manufacturers to bring about fundamental changes. Chocolate, there was actually a Congress really almost took actions to try to force information about cocoa production because there had been so much work with child labor. And then when they went back, 15 years later, despite all the large chocolate companies, their trade association and noted policy figures entering into a written agreement saying, look, here are the changes, like those changes weren't brought about. And again, because a lot of times the chocolate makers didn't actually know where the cocoa was coming from. And so we still see actually even higher rates potentially of child labor because it's not observable. And, and we've seen similar challenges with ESG. Europe is further ahead. So that's where more of the empirical work is coming out. And so, for example, if you look at some of the early green bonds, when you subsequently go back, it does look like if they issued a bond and said, look, we're going to use these proceeds in this particularly green way, they did use the proceeds of those bonds in a particular green way, but the overall financing of the company is otherwise fungible. And the overall carbon footprint of those companies didn't actually change, right? So they just said, okay, we'll just use other sources of funding to do all these other things that actually aren't bringing about a meaningful change in our operations, which doesn't mean that we don't need third-party verification systems, but a third-party verification system, if you're doing nothing else to simplify the chain, to actually make that system potentially work well, is unlikely to be as reliable as we want it to be because of the economic incentives involved once you're an investor or a consumer willing to pay a premium. Well, look, I mean, the financial crisis, I think we can safely say that there was some regulatory failure there, not just failure of financial management in various financial institutions, but also a regulatory failure. But it seems like in areas like the ones that you talk about, whether it's environmental protection or protection of child labor and so forth, have we kind of given up on using law? I mean, you're a lawyer, I'm a lawyer, and it seems like I mean, everyone I talk about that 
their first thought is not to regulation and law, but to these private initiatives, right? I'm going to alter the way I consume my products, or I'm going to change the way I invest. But isn't this sort of something that we really as a society think that these things are bad? Why don't we just pass laws? Part of your argument is that the same opacity that we face as consumers is faced also by regulators. So is there an argument in favor of restricting the complexity so that it makes it easier for the regulators to see what's going on? Is that kind of like a second best? If we had infinite capacities as regulators, then we could allow as much complexity as we want because we could see right through it. Would laws around managing complexity be a second best way to facilitate our limited capacity for scrutiny? couple of things there. First of all, I completely agree that even though we're seeing the shifting consumer demands and investor demands, conscious consumerism is not going to solve the structural challenges that we're facing right now. And part of the book, and even in calling for shifts in behavior, is partly just a shift in awareness. So we have the political will to actually follow through on the legal changes that you need to bring about more meaningful change. Because part of what the book also shows is that it's actually very costly oftentimes to be the individual opting out. And so once these systems become dominant, we actually need to think structurally over how we create an environment that allows and restores meaningful choice and not assume that somehow the market's going to sort it out. So regulation and law is going to be key. And I say a lot, like we actually see a lot happening, right? So Germany recently passed the Supply Chain Act and part of what they're trying to pay attention to are things like what are the minimum conditions that we want for upstream laborers? Similarly for the United States, partly because of the geopolitical moment, we have started to say, look, we've had all of this evidence of Uyghur forced labor lying behind goods that are entering the United States. We didn't outlaw slavery here just to enable it in other places. And so there's reasons I think we started with China, but we are seeing legal efforts to try to say, look, we want to do this. And then part of what's interesting is in all of those instances, very often the companies at first are saying, look, we can't do that because we just don't know. And so it's not just like the goods that are being imported from China, but here's all of these other countries that are buying cotton from China. And so you're suddenly making it so hard for us because you're requiring a whole different type of monitoring. And so I think part of what we're doing is actually indirectly through those types of laws, bringing about what you just suggested, which is effectively forcing companies to start to opt for shorter supply chains, because that's the only way they can actually start to make credible commitments about what the upstream impact are. So I think we actually are seeing an iterative process through which shifting public demand, so it's consumer demand, but it's also a kind of public concern, is shaping certain types of legislative preferences. And I think we're only on the first steps of that in ways that are then saying oftentimes what's required are disclosure of certain types of limitations, but to be able to comply, shorter supply chains are the only way to do it. One of the things that I like about shorter supply chains generally, first of all, there's going to be times we're going to have complex supply chains, is it also does help you to create a system that's resilient to also a change in environment, either a change in preferences or a shock somewhere along the system you're able to respond to those changing circumstances more easily when you can see all of the different pieces. And part of the reason we got dysfunction we did in 2008, we have the degree of dysfunction in the supply chains as they came back online is that incomplete information piece. Don't shorter supply chains sometimes mean more scale? So if you think about Warby Parker, for instance, or all of these other direct-to-consumer companies, Warby Parker has probably put a couple hundred optometrists out of business. And think about the real estate industry. You have this wonderful case study of real estate where you talk about how the real estate agents have entrenched themselves. 
and created monopolistic rents that every time somebody buys a home, you got to pay 6% to these people, right? And, and all of these efforts to get rid of them have been resisted by this guild of real estate agents. But isn't that kind of precisely the industry where an Amazon, if an Amazon could get into this space or Zillow or some of the companies that you mentioned in there, if they were able to get into this space, it would reduce the transaction costs and narrow the bid-ask spread on housing. But presumably, they would then become these monolithic platforms, and like Amazon is to a lot of merchandise. They would be to real estate. So real estate is a really interesting area because this is the challenge. It's individually real estate agents, these people that you know, and like, oh, well, I like my real estate agent. They're really helpful. And then you take a step back and you actually look at the system. You're like, all these individuals might be like really nice and helpful, but they are part of a fundamentally broken system. And again, originally they were great. Originally, when you created the multiple listing service before you had the internet, it was really helpful for somebody who was moving to New Era and wanted to buy a house. Like they didn't just have to look at the classifieds or drive around. They could go to a real estate agent and the real estate agent would say like, here's a bunch of houses that are in your price range, help them understand kind of where they're going to be or what the neighborhood is. But now we're in a technologically massively different moment of time. And fees have basically gone from about 6% to about 5%, right? And you really cannot easily opt out of the system without bearing a lot of the cost of opting out, both the inconvenience, but the fact that the agents on the other side, the buyer's agents and buyers feel free, even though they're actually not free to use an agent, are going to be potentially less likely to look at you. So we see all these really innovative alternatives not able to take hold. And it matters, again, as you know well, but not all of your viewers are going to know, that for the wealthy, most of their money are stocks and bonds and other financial assets. But for a middle-class American family, the housing is our number one source of wealth. So when we make it so expensive to tap in to that nest egg, we are draining the primary form of wealth of your average middle-class family. And so the system is really broken. I don't know if there's reasons to think that you're necessarily going to end up with just one if you had a different system, partly because we've seen so many different innovative alternatives. And there's reasons different cities, different geographies, and different price points might actually want slightly different types of design. So I guess there is the possibility that you would end up with a massive monopolist as the alternative. But if you think about the heterogeneity, actually across different types of houses, different types of buyers, and different types of areas, that's part of what makes the uniformity so suspicious, right? And so I think there's reasons to think it, it wouldn't necessarily devolve into a single monolith. But again, that's one of the areas where I would still like to see an evolution. We can even look abroad and see how much more these fees have dropped in a lot of other countries to say there's a lot of better ways of doing this than what we, the system that we have right now in the United States. Another related point is when it comes to regulation, on the one hand, it's easier to regulate an industry when it's highly concentrated because you can delegate a lot of this regulation to the big players. The classic example of this is the New York Stock Exchange, right? So when the New York Stock Exchange had more or less a monopoly on the trading of stocks, it was just sort of an arm of the SEC. And if you have hundreds of different places where people are congregating, then it becomes a lot harder to regulate. But then the flip side is that when you give that much power to this one organization, then they have the ability to change the game in their favor. How do you trade off ease of regulation with regulatory capture? The New York Stock Exchange is a great example of this. I mean, because they built this great infrastructure, it did make it a lot easier to engage in trades. So at first it reduced the cost of trades. 
But then they also really did lobby hard for systems that protected them. So we saw fixed brokerage fees far outlasting the time that they were justified. And again, I think people oftentimes think about regulatory capture as a term you use, and that's certainly kind of part of what happens. But part of what's important to know and why intermediaries have so much influence is once they really understand the market so well, they're usually able to come up with these semi-credible stories over why what the regulator thinks is going to be good for investors or or consumers actually isn't going to be. So as we saw that in banking, so when they wanted to get rid of the fixed brokerage fees, they said, look, let's just make this a little more competitive. The brokerage firms came out, the New York Stock Exchange said, look, if you force us to compete, we're going to do exactly what you just said. There's going to end up just being one. Right now, there's a lot of different houses. It's really healthy. It's healthy to have so many different choices. And what you're going to end up with is massive concentration. So you're really going to have a monopoly or an oligopoly. And so that competition is going to be destructive. And so not surprisingly, regulators were much slower to allow the fixed brokerage scheme to end. And a lot of additional rents were collected by all of those New York Stock Exchange members in that process. Finally, the SEC got off the backbone to say, you know what, you're telling us the story, but we're not gonna fully buy it. And then they allowed competition. And what did we see? There were a couple of brokerage firms that failed, but we actually had much healthier competition and fees came down significantly, putting all investors in a much better situation. And there is, I think, some of the trade-off that you're saying, and part of what the book is illuminating, is just that there are trade-offs. At the same time, there's reasons quite often, I think, to be skeptical of some of the horror stories that you tend to get, even if they seem like credible horror stories about what are the bad things that are gonna happen. And again, I think in a different view than many people, I still think you need to talk to industry because industry really does understand how domain operates. But I think you need to not only take a with a general grain of salt any lobbying activities, but to understand just how much skepticism you should have, you need to understand the business model. And so part of the idea in the book is as individuals, but also policymakers, really understanding what is the business model of a particular intermediary can provide a lot of insight into how much to trust them and where to be more skeptical. When we have these centralized platforms, it's easier to monitor bad behavior. People complain about Twitter and Facebook, the market power they have, but they can identify hate speech and terrorist videos fairly quickly and suppress them. Whereas if you had more of a peer-to-peer system, a decentralized system, it would be really, really difficult to identify it and stomp it out, right? I was thinking in terms of exchanges. So you've done a lot of work in the derivative space. I remember back in pre-2008, and I did some work on this, most of the swaps trading was over the counter. And so part of Dodd-Frank was to try to force that towards some kind of more centralized platform so the regulators could have visibility into what's going on and so forth. And of course, the vested interests resisted this. They wanted more direct interactions. They wanted to be the ones that ran the show in this very fragmented way. So are there cases where more centralization and more scale can actually lead to more stability as opposed to less stability or less brittleness? Yeah. And this goes back to the point that you had much earlier on over the way platforms can also enable scale and small scale at the same time. So that's why there's not like a single answer to what they should look like, because sometimes understanding thoughtfully the intermediation design helps us to understand 
do we want scale or lack of scale at this level? Because that might allow different types of things to flourish in other areas. So oftentimes when you're thinking about a regulatory strategy, you want to think about the whole chain and the whole map, try to figure out what you're trying to achieve, and then try to figure out what are going to be the trade-offs over how we deal with this particular layer in this broader system. And what is it we want at this layer? Do we want innovation here? Or do we want to actually have a bunch of neutrality rules here so we spur more innovation at other spaces? And so you're going to want to think holistically about the overall system when you're trying to make those types of trade-offs. And there's certainly times and places where scale combined with oversight at a particular node along a chain is certainly probably a, a healthy way to go. You just want to be really mindful about when and how you're allowing that to happen because we've just had such a long history of things going wrong when that happens. Now, towards the end of the book, I thought you had some really interesting speculations on the connection between complex supply chains and loneliness. And this is obviously, you know, venturing into some... Yes, speculations, I think, is the right term there. This is where... (laughs) This is the kind of stuff I love to talk about. I love speculations, because usually speculations lead to research, and then research leads to insight. I was wondering if you could just talk about that a little bit. Correlation doesn't imply causation, but we've certainly seen a rise in loneliness and disaffectedness and so forth. How could you potentially tie that to the patterns of manufacturing distribution that you see? I mean, I think right now we are at a moment of trying to think differently over individually what we want, but also as a society, what is it is we actually want out of our economy? And I think for a long time, we did have a certain set of assumptions that it was about low cost, it was about convenient, it was about cheap and easy. And all of that actually tends to be catering to who you are and where you are. And so inconveniences that are taking you out of where you are seem like, well, that's adding a friction. What do we want to do? We want to get rid of frictions because like frictions are costs and we're going to be better off without them. But you realize that like some of those frictions are also where meaning and connection start to happen, which doesn't mean we want to introduce them all over the place and have people standing in lines arbitrarily, but being more thoughtful about the fact that, yes, we have this hat we wear as consumers. And so the time and money that we're having to invest in goods potentially are affecting the net consumption joy we're getting from a good. But that's really only one hat we wear and that we've been so focused on that hat. We haven't been thinking as much about the texture and nature of those interactions. Part of what's interesting is direct exchange actually is already on the rise, even though it involves all kinds of inconvenience. Mm -hmm. So we've talked a couple of times about these community sponsored agriculture and farmers markets. Those are inconvenient. As you pointed out, like they are inconvenient relative to a modern supermarket. But guess what? They're also growing and spreading. Those are points where then you have this interaction where you're not only learning about the good, but it's also a social interaction that you're having with a person who is actually oftentimes connected with the grower of your food or otherwise connected to the source of the good. And a lot of the psychological literature is really interesting because a lot of those repeat but casual interactions can be a meaningful part of starting to combat loneliness. There's the core friendships and the core family structure, but a lot of it also are those types of frictions that actually brought meaning in ways that I don't think we appreciated until we really smoothed them away. Learning how to thoughtfully bring those back or enable them, or do you just just take a step back and look at the fact that people are already doing this? I think does help us to see like sometimes getting exactly what you want might have costs that are different in form but actually potentially more important than the ones that are the actual kind of good you're taking home. You're talking about bridging this gap between your 
instrumental and commercial life and your social and friendship life. So one view is that you buy your merchandise and you invest your money and then that's all anonymous interaction. And then you go and you do your sports with your friends, but getting to know the people you buy and sell with is creating a more porous boundary between those two different domains. And I know a lot of people that are in angel groups. And so they direct a lot of their investing towards these founders. Now, look, the returns, the risk adjusted returns of these activities is lower than what they would get in the S&P 500. And it also sucks up a big chunk of their time. But I think in terms of the meaning that it makes for them, it's quite substantial. So do you see this dissolution between the commercial and the professional and the personal lives as a way of enhancing meaning? Yes, I think that's exactly the idea. And I love your example, actually, because it's an, another example of the way people are already doing this, right? We have a set of assumptions and there's a bunch of behaviors that don't map those assumptions. And rather than assuming like there's something wrong with those behaviors, maybe those behaviors are actually a revealed preference of what people want to find in their lives. They're not going to probably do that with their entire portfolio. Some of it's going to be in an S&P 500 index, but doing that with a portion of your time and a portion of your life. So it's not eliminating. I think there's some things that are going to remain commercial because we've done a good job with it, but actually realizing that there's more optionality around the edges of that and more opportunity for meaning making around the edges of that than we've often previously appreciated can be really helpful. I mean, part of what's been interesting to hear from readers are how the book actually just helped people understand things they were already doing in a different way. And then that helped them want to do more of in some ways what they're already doing. So it's the holiday season. It's amazing how many people like go out and cut their own Christmas trees. I've always done it. We like go to the same place every year. And other people who do, I think, really enjoy that. It's like a once a year. It's not even oftentimes like a frequent relationship. But even that once a year, you always see like the same people, you go to the same place and you like are watching the trees. You go back and you get to know that land, you get to know that space. And it's amazing how little traditions like that can add some richness, which is not viable or possible for everybody, but it also adds richness on the other side. And I think that's the part we sometimes forget about is part of what's really interesting is this is also what enables jobs that are not necessarily going to be the highest paying jobs, but ones that can be more rewarding and more meaningful. And so part of what's interesting is not only do we all go shop at Amazon and Walmart, they're the two biggest employers. And so you're getting a kind of different type of connection and a different type of opportunity from people on both sides when we're balancing out the mix of how we and where we source things. Catherine, thanks so much for joining me. The book is called Direct if you want to learn a little bit about the middleman economy, you want to learn a little about real estate and mortgage finance <laughs> and food and pink slime. I don't think you use the term pink slime. There's E. coli, all sorts of fun stuff. And there's a little bit of memoir in there too. So thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.